it won't really touch our hearts. And the power of God, I believe, is one of the keys to finding a pathway through suffering, through times of pain, that actually is substantive, that actually holds up under the weight. So you have an area in your bulletin where you can take some notes. Today we're going to talk about God's power, God's sovereignty. And to begin, I want you all to think about how you use power. What does it mean to use power? You might think of that in our modern world in terms of like, well, you know, did I plug in my phone last night? Does it have enough energy to get through the day? If you drive an electric vehicle, similar kind of deal. Um, Dallas Willard's one of my favorite philosophers. He's a Christian author, and he had this great quote about power. Power is the capacity to accomplish an end or a goal. So think about the last time you gave yourself a goal, like, okay, I got to go do the shopping today. Here's my shopping list. You are creating a goal that you can accomplish because God has given you power. Uh, a project that I recently took on with some friends was uh, a demo of my tool shed. This is a picture of one of my friends helping me do this. Uh, I don't normally carry around a sledgehammer to swing at things, but it was fun to do that at uh, my tool shed. It was kind of rotting. It had just gotten a whole bunch of rain on it over the years. So we tore out uh, the siding. We were able to keep the studs, which I was very excited about because I didn't want to have to rebuild the whole thing. Uh, and so we took down the walls of the shed, and then eventually I'm going to rebuild it. It's, it's, you know, maybe a minor project for some. For me, this is a bit of a stretch, but I like doing this kind of thing. And so the power that's at play here is a couple of things. Yes, you need physical power to be able to swing a sledgehammer and kind of take down something that's in front of you. But I needed more power. I needed my friends to come help me because it would have taken a really long time if I just dem dem demolished it by myself. We all have limitations on our power. That's what this is kind of trying to point toward. So think about the last time you had a goal and you weren't able to achieve it. It was too complicated for you. There were things that you were trying to do where you're like, man, this is way out of my reach. When I rebuild my tool shed, I will do it in a particular way that's befitting of my skills, right? I'm going to hang up some plywood and make sure that it's square and that the door is closed. Like, it's not going to be super complicated. If I was a master carpenter, I would do it very differently. I would have all kinds of considerations. Even if I'm building a simple tool shed, I don't have as many limitations because I have the experience. A master carpenter's ability to, to create something is greater. Their ability to use power toward that end is greater than my own. All of us have the limitation of sin layered over our power. Every time we try to accomplish a goal, every time we try to set something in front of us, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get this new position at work. I'm going to make sure my kids are successful over here. Our limitations are always colored and cracked by sin. And there are countless examples of this just from the last week's news cycle alone. In politics, people misuse power all the time, do they not? There's a way to create laws that punish some people. There are ways to create laws that elevate others. And the parties that are in power right now are often at odds about this. In business, there is misuse of power. You may have seen that the president of CNN got fired this week because he had an inappropriate relationship with a colleague. That was a misuse of his power. And in the church, we have a terrible track record of misusing power, of power corrupting, of power leading to all kinds of problem and sin. Last Sunday, we had a discussion after our worship service about the rise and fall of Mars Hill, this podcast series. So much of that is about the misappropriation of, and misuse of power. I say all this to mention that, one, you have power. Every person in this room has the ability to achieve goals, so you have power. But two, we need to be aware of how our sin can corrupt and lead us to misuse our power. 
And the only pathway through this that we can see with great clarity in today's text is nestling our use of power under the greater power of God. Letting God direct and use our power in service to his greater good. The way this is illustrated in the book of Job happens actually through relationship. This is a painting that we've referred to a couple of different times called Job's Friends. And in it, if you look over from left to right, you see Job's wife sitting behind him on the ground. You see Job, obviously very destitute, brokenhearted. If you could see his face in detail, it's haggard. I mean, he is in the bottom of despair. And then over to the right are the three friends. And we've touched on this the last couple of weeks. Each friend takes a different posture toward Job. I mean, literally, you can see it, right? There's a man sitting on the ground, one of his friends. That person is sitting with him. He is practicing solidarity. He's showing Job, I'm not just with you mentally, Job. I am with you in your suffering. And then there's the other two friends, and we're going to talk about these guys today. You can just tell from their body language, their posture, the way they're standing, they have a very different approach to Job. And as we've looked at each of these three friends of Job, we've learned that God is teaching some very important truths through the dialogues that they have. And the dialogue that we just heard is an excerpt from a dialogue between Job and the final friend we'll talk about, Zophar. Job is about suffering. Job is about power. And so today we're going to talk about how that plays out in this dialogue with Zophar. So very briefly, the outline that we're going to go through goes like this. We're going to talk about what power is. I'm going to expand a little bit on kind of that brief definition I gave us. We're going to talk about a truth that is revealed in this dialogue between Job and Zophar, and then we're going to see how this calls us to trust. The end of today's sermon is not, well, just pray harder or work harder or do more, and then you'll find your way through suffering. The hope is that our hearts will become more trusting of God through this study today. So first, let's talk about what is the sovereignty of God. You may have studied this in a Bible study, or if you did a theology class or something, this may be a rehearsal for you. That's great. I need to be reminded of this stuff too. Also, depending on which church tradition you grew up in, there may have been a big-time emphasis on the sovereignty of power of God, and there may not have been. I grew up in the Presbyterian Church, the Reformed tradition. We got a big old emphasis on the sovereignty of God. In other traditions, it may not have been emphasized as much. Regardless, this is a truth about who God is that we all need to be aware of. So power is the ability to accomplish an end, right? We talked about that with Dallas Willard. Then the word sovereign is the supreme power or authority. Nothing can touch it, right? This is the top of the heap. So the sovereignty of God, according to a Baptist scholar named Wayne Grudem, is God's exercise of his power over his creation. God's ability to exercise power over creation, that's what we mean when we say the sovereignty of God. Guess what creation includes? All of us you and me and the world and everything that happens. God is sovereign over creation. Now here's a really important truth to drill down on before we move too far along. If God has all this power, can we trust him to use it well or wisely? Or is he going to misappropriate it? All throughout the book of Job, we have seen over and over and over again, God uses his power not just well, perfectly. He perfectly uses power. There's a a little definition I want to share. Oh, uh, well, we'll do that first, and then we'll go through the scriptures. God's in-chargeness, his ability to be sovereign, is always balanced by God's faithfulness. God is powerful and holds ultimate authority, but at the core of God's sovereignty are grace, love, and faithfulness, not absolute power. When you become the president of a company, when you get elected to political office, 
when you assume a position of responsibility, there is this feeling of like, oh my gosh, I have power. I have the ability to influence people. Believe me, I feel the weight of that power daily as a pastor. But my power is not absolute. Only God holds absolute power, and at the core of it are grace and love and faithfulness. That is why God's power is not tainted by sin. It's not corrupt like our use of power. The scriptures that point so clearly to this, I'll just blast through these very briefly, are Genesis 1 and Genesis 50. It's kind of fun. The book of Genesis begins and ends with some really good lessons about power. In Genesis chapter 1, God is present at creation. He's creating the world. And the theological term for what happens there is rule by fiat, by speaking. Things happen. Remember, you might have studied this in Sunday school. God said, let there be light. And what happens? There was light. God said, let there be land and let there be water. And there was land and there was water. Rule by fiat can also be translated rule like Alexa. If you tell Alexa what to do, what does Alexa do? It does it. When God says, let there be light, light. When God says, let there be a division between land and the waters, let that happen. The theological term for that is rule by fiat, by speaking it. God says it and it happens. That's his power. That's his sovereignty. In Genesis 50, we see how God's intentions for the use of his power can't be corrupted. So this is the very end of the story of Joseph. Remember this? Joseph was, uh, Joseph in the magic technicolor dream coat, anybody? Yeah. He is favored among the sons, and his brothers sell him into slavery, and it's a huge mess. And then there's the story of redemption. He's elevated to power in the office of Pharaoh. His brothers come back to him, and they're in need, and they don't recognize him. I'm telling you guys all stories I'm sure you've heard before. And at the end of Genesis chapter 50, there's this beautiful scene of reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. And you might remember this line, his brothers come to him and they beg for mercy and they show remorse for what they've done. And Joseph says to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended this for good. And when you step back from the story of Joseph, you see this is true. Joseph literally rescues the entire nation of Israel from starvation. He saves God's people. He rescues them. And his brother's cruel intentions for him are redeemed and made merciful by God. And what Joseph's proclaim is true for us. God's intentions will not fail. So if you have failed, if you've tried to use power to rebuild a relationship, if you have tried to influence something, you've tried to accomplish a goal, you've tried to do this, that, or the other, and it just hasn't worked, know that that is not a lost cause. I mean, it might be, but know that that is not lost in the economy of God, that he is continuing to do good work in you and through you, even if you can't see it. In Ephesians 3, chapter 20, Paul gives this amazing word to the church about how God's power is expressed in people. His ability to rule and reign and lead is expressed in each of us. Your participation in God's power is doing good things around the world. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it isn't happening. And we'll get into some more specific examples about this in just a moment. So that's briefly touching on the sovereignty of God. And I want to mention this as we uh, make the turn now to our second movement where we talk about this truth. We're going back to Job for just a moment. All throughout the book of Job... Job has shown again and again and again that he trusts God. Job is introduced in chapter 1 as a man who is faithful, who believes in God, who is, uh, who, who is righteous before God. But he's not perfect. 
And you may feel like when you're sitting here this morning, like you're in a good place, like your marriage is in a good place, your family's in a good place, like you've kind of got a few things going well for you. But every one of us, I think if we're hard pressed, would admit like there's things that I really need help on. And what Job doesn't realize, what he has a little bit of blinders around, is that his trust in God is only so deep. And may this never happen to any of us to go through the suffering that Job goes through, but it is deepening his trust in God. It is. And I don't mean to say that as a balm over serious suffering that people go through. It's not comforting to hear that. That's not my intention. But it is important for people who are following Jesus Christ to say, look, God sees this much bigger than I do. And Job eventually comes to that at the very end. But remember what has to happen to him first. He loses his business he loses his home, he loses his children, his family, and finally he loses his health and his comfort. And if any one of those things were to happen to any of us, we would struggle. We, we might not even be able to get out of bed if those things happen. And maybe you've been in a place like that in your past. But it is all a means toward Job deepening this trust that he must have with God. Now, This may be the point in the sermon where some of you who've been a part of a church in the past are going, okay, so I'm in the midst of suffering, and you're telling me that all I need to do is trust God more. Thanks a lot. Like, thanks. I really appreciate that. Trust harder. Try harder. harder. I've heard that sermon, buddy. Like, thanks. I'm out. And I would say that's a fair accusation because the church has been overly simplistic in the past about suffering. And I want to say that that's not actually what I'm interested in doing today. I want us to consider this. That whatever suffering you are going through, whatever suffering you are observing in the world around you, your angle on it, my angle on it, is about this big compared to what God can see. We do this all the time. It's kind of a reductionistic, kind of nihilistic thing that humans do. We go, okay, I can't see the purpose of what's happening here. Therefore, there is no purpose. I can't see why God would walk me through this season in my family or why I was unemployed for so long. I I don't understand it. Therefore, nothing good can come of that. Therefore, it was all a loss. Friends, I do that all the time. And let me tell you, that doesn't help my soul. It doesn't help me be a better husband and father. But we do this all the time. This is human behavior. What if we did this? This may be your takeaway for the morning. What if more and more the people of God started to adopt this attitude that says this, consider the fact that God will see this far more broadly and in greater detail than me. In 1 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul shares with this church, he says this, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Think of the brightest, most brilliant people you work with. If, if you, someone came up to you and said, what's your colleague like? You'd say, oh, they have a great mind. They have a sharp mind. In this room or any room can imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Here, the next time you're in the midst of suffering. You know what, God? My little brain can't conceive this. I can't see all of the angles. I just can't. And your word tells me that. So I need to find my comfort in you and not what I can figure out here. And honestly, the more I've sat with this text that the Phillips read for us, the more I think that's what Zophar might be saying to Job. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 7. 
So, and he, these are rhetorical questions, right? They're meant to elevate these greater truths. So, Zophar says to Job in, chapter, in verse 7, can you solve the mysteries of God? Can you discover everything about the Almighty? Now, he's not asking Job if he really can do that. He's posing this question to reveal a greater truth. Job, you can't possibly understand what God is up to in your life. You can't. You can't. One of the burdens that we've talked about that comes up all throughout the book of Job is this burden of meaning. When we're in suffering, we try to find meaning in it. We try to find purpose in it. What Zophar is saying to Job is, don't do it. It, You're going to get on that hamster wheel and you're just going to keep running because you don't have the mind of God. You cannot conceive of what God might be doing here. And in a way, this is an indirect comfort because Zophar is saying to Job, hey, look, all this bad stuff has happened to you, and I know you're trying to figure it out, and we, your friends, have done a terrible job of helping you figure this out. Maybe it's just something that God has done, and you can't figure it out. He goes on to say a little bit more in verses 8 and 9. Such knowledge is higher than the heavens, and who are you? It is deeper than the underworld. What do you know? It is broader than the earth and wider than the sea. All these words, higher, deeper, broader, wider, all they're meant to do is present to Job the reality of how huge God is and how tiny he is. God is all-powerful, Job. God is all-knowing. Your mind can't grasp his ways. Just in the course of my study this week, I had a few moments, some things I've been thinking about, some personal convictions, and I just felt this sense of peace. It calmed me down when I could hear this word. Do you hear this word? You can't fully conceive of it, Rebecca. Not because you're dumb, but because you're not God. This suffering that you're facing, this season of trial, where you feel like everything is getting piled on you and you are overwhelmed, I know it's hard, but you can't see all the angles. You can't, because you're not God. sit with that, if you chew on that, if you look at the scripture, if you hold it out before your life, may you, my prayer for you is that this would be an entry point of God's peace into your life in the midst of suffering. And if you're not in a season of suffering right now, that's fine. Tuck this away, file it away. You're going to need to pull it out at some point because it's coming. To everything his friends say to him is so interesting. He basically says, hey, I agree with you theologically. I agree that God is big and God is sovereign, but I'm innocent. I don't deserve this stuff to be happening to me. Fundamentally, I'm seeing that. Have you ever been in a season like that? I believe that God is good. Somewhere, to somebody, but it ain't me right now. This room that have lived a long time, and you've seen this many times. Long church, if you struggle to trust God in the midst of your suffering, to ask the question, God, where are you? off the page is when we fall into this impatient, short-sighted attitude of, if I can't see the reason now, there must be no reason. If I can't experience God's relief soon, quickly, nearly at the end of this time of suffering, if I can't see it right now, 
then it's never coming. And friends, that is just such a short-sighted way to look at this broader trajectory of what God may be doing in our lives. Discouragement. I certainly did. Many of you know this. Uh, my dad, who I love very much, passed away two and a half years ago. He had cancer. It came on very quickly. By the time he was diagnosed, he was pretty far along. And then six very short weeks later, very agonizing weeks later, we laid him to rest. It was an incredibly painful time in my life. And you bet I wrestled with questions of like, what is going on? Why is this happening? Why did my dad get sick? Like, what? Why? Why? And I'm so glad that God in his mercy kind of kept me from getting too wrapped up in that hamster wheel of what's going on here? Why isn't there a solution? Why don't I feel peace yet? What's going on? You can't microwave grief. You can't rush yourself through the process of grieving and lamenting. You have to sit with it. And human beings, especially Western human beings, especially Americans, we don't like waiting. I want to be able to flip to my Bible and find the passage that's going to give me comfort right now, on demand. It doesn't work like that. So today's message is as much a call to trust in the sovereignty of God as it is a call to be patient, to wait for what the Lord is doing. From 1 Corinthians, no mind can conceive what God is up to. Bible. I know y'all have spent time serving Jesus in so many different ways. Your mind cannot conceive what God is up to. Neither can mine. Let us rest in that. Let us have peace in that. Because the one who had peace in that. last week, and I wanted to come back to it because it's just so chilling in so many ways. This is Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane by Robert Walter Weir. Water and charcoal, but it is a depiction of Jesus on the night of his betrayal. And there's, you know, the sun setting behind him. There's his friends over here. The city of Jerusalem is there in the distance. And he's in agony. his ministry. I am here to do the will of my Father. And it carried him to here. I was going to get. In this moment is what I want to offer us as our takeaway today. Deeper and deeper trust was this ancient resource of prayer. Thinking about prayer that was helpful to me this week. This again comes from Dallas Willard. Prayer is God's arrangement for a safe power sharing with us in his intention to bless the world through us. Power sharing? God shares his power with us? Are you kidding? We're not equals with God, but God does pour out his power in his people. He did this at Pentecost. He does this throughout the history of the church. God is pouring out his power into you and me. And so in response to prayer, we see good accomplished far beyond what we are capable of and in a form suited to the wisdom of God. When we ask God in prayer, God, do something through me, we're saying, you know what's going on. You have the mind that understands all this. I do not. We're not just asking, as Willard goes on to say, we're not just saying what we think we know about the situation we're praying for. 
dad was sick, we prayed for healing. We prayed that God would restore him. You better believe we were on our knees for that. But we didn't see it the way God did. And I wish God had rescued my dad, but he didn't. He rescued him in eternity, but his life here ended. Part of the burden I carry, and every day it is a grief that I feel. But you know what? What I think I know about losing my dad is that I'm sure God has blessed others through this loss. I know it doesn't compare to the ways that God blessed the people that tried to take care of my dad at MD Anderson Cancer Center. They were such a blessing to us, and we, in turn, tried to bless them. There are so many ways that there can be good in this, and I will not see so much of the good. I believe that God is working that out in your pain and suffering and in mine. This is a word of comfort to hang in there and to be patient. I hope you hear this as a means not to simplify your pain or your suffering or the suffering of others, but to say, are you waiting? Are you praying, God, not my will, as Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Not what I think I know about what's happening here, but what you know. God in using our power. This is how we partner with God in submission to Him, never in equality with Him, in submission to Him. Time to reflect, to pray. Those of you joining us online, you're welcome to gather some communion elements in your home. The table. We're going to submit this time to God. Such a tiny part of what you're doing in our lives. We see through a mirror darkly. We don't we don't see the whole picture. Modeled for us this deep trust, which we pray you would bring to flowering and bring to fullness in each of our lives. Come now to the table and receive from you, from this bountiful gift of bread and juice, more so your body and your blood. By faith. Time, set apart these elements in us what you have said to us through your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.